You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. As I mentioned earlier, my name is Wesley, one of the pastors here, and today we Continue in our series uh, in Romans, looking at chapter 5. We took a little break last week uh, to celebrate baptisms, which was such a joy. Uh, today we pick up in chapter 5 of our series in Romans. Now this week was a very bizarre week here in D.C. Uh, if you live here, you know. First we had the terrible, terrible, terrible air quality, thanks to the wildfires in Canada, um, that for some days in this week it made this city look apocalyptic. Uh, it was pretty gnarly. Uh, you couldn't get out, especially on Thursday. Uh, thank God it's now past us. I, I hope for the foreseeable futures. And then to top it all off at the end of the week, there was a bear sighting in D.C. Did you know this, guys? All right, there was a, there was a black bear in D.C. There it is. Uh, this black bear has a name now. The name is Franklin because it was found on Franklin Street. So um, Franklin wandered into D.C., and, and let me tell you, there's a lot of important things going on in the world this weekend, but this was by far the most important thing in D.C. Uh, there was nothing that generated more buzz than this news of a bear found in the streets of D.C. Now, he climbed up in a tree, and he hung out there for about four hours, and the story continued to unfold on social media and whatnot. Uh, but I think there was an interview that kind of summed up this story better than any of them. Um, and and I, I, I wish I'd play the whole interview for you, because then you can get the context. But um, anyways, you can, you can look on Twitter. Um, I even you know, showed the Twitter here of, of Matt Torres. Um, and you can, um, you can follow this, and you can see the full context of this interview. But this lady, I think she summed it up so perfectly, of uh, the buzz of the bear named Franklin in D.C. Here's her quote, okay? There's a bear in a tree. And I was like, praise God, there's a bear in a tree. <laughs> it's amazing. Listen, she says, it's amazing what will bring a community together. <laughs> now, at first glance, that, that seems kind of silly and misplaced that she's so happy that there's a bear on her street. Uh, most of us and most humans throughout time, when they see a bear come up on their street, it doesn't bring joy. Um, in fact, there, it brings a little bit of, of Maybe you're scared, maybe some, uh, some uh, terrible news or something of that nature. But for her, in this circumstance, it actually brought a lot of joy. And if you read on the story, you'll see that her con- the context of her quote actually makes a lot more sense. Because what she goes on to say is the reason why she says, praise God that there's a bear in a tree, is because any time in her neighborhood where she sees the yellow crime tape go up and the police presence come, she knows something terrible has happened. And in fact, she says it's happened way too often in her neighborhood. And she goes on to say it, it leads her into to a type of despair every time she sees that yellow tape come up and every time she sees the abundance of police presence in her neighborhood. But this time it was different. Because of the presence of the bear, it changed her perception. That when she looked at that yellow crime scene tape, she looked at the, priest, uh, the police presence, it actually brought out joy in her life, not despair. Now we can say that's really silly, but honestly, I think it's pretty profound. Because it teaches us something about our souls. It teaches us something about who we are that can be said of our lives today, that there could be something in our lives so powerful, so bizarre, like a bear in a tree, that could change the way we look at the yellow crime scene tape in our own lives. And what I mean by that, when we look at the bad circumstances we face, 
the things that typically lead us to despair, the things that typically uh, bring about sadness in our lives, the things that typically lead us to a place where we're downtrodden and we feel like, man, here's another crime, here's another moment in my life where I'm suffering. There is actually something powerful that can come into our lives that can change our perception of that. That we, like the lady, can respond and say, praise God. Praise God that the yellow crime scene tape is there. Praise God that there is something in my life that may not seem great in this moment, but there's still a reason why I can praise him. And that is the foundation called Christian joy. It is something so bizarre to this world. It is something that seems so elusive in life, and yet it's attainable through what Jesus has done for us. And that's really the main idea of our message today, that a result, one of the results of our justification, which is what we've been talking about in Romans, that we are justified because of what Jesus has done for us, one of the results of that is that we get joy. One of the benefits of the Christian life is that we get joy. Said another way, because of what Jesus has done for us, one of the defining markers of a Christian is joy. And this text is going to remind us today that to live a Christian life and to live life in general is that we have to have a center of joy in our lives. We're going to find this text is going to demonstrate that for us because it's a transition text. If you go to verse 1 real quick, you'll see this. Paul writes, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, right? Anytime you see the word therefore, you have to remind yourself that is a bridge word. Paul is connecting things together. He is saying, we have talked about this in the past. We've talked about your justification. And because you have been justified by faith, we're now pivoting for something else. And what are we pivoting from? We're, we're pivoting from the end of chapter 4, which really summarized the first few chapters of Romans. That Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised for our justification, meaning that we're justified in Jesus, not, not just forgiven, that is a part of it, but so much more than that. It's a legal declaration. Now, when God looks at us, in his sight, we are made right, we are just. Meaning that we are treated by God as if we are sinless, even though we're not meaning we're treated by God, we're given things from our Heavenly Father that would be given to someone who's just, because in Christ we are. And he says, since this has happened, therefore, now let's look at the benefits of the Christian life. Let's look at the results now of a life that has been justified by faith in what Jesus has done. And what does he begin to say? Well, he says that there's some benefits accrue here for us uh, of the Christian faith. Verse uh, 1 and 2, he says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also obtain access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so he tells us there's benefits now that we have in the Christian life because of what Jesus, Jesus has done for us, which Paul's been unpacking in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. And now that we know what Jesus has done for us, here's the past, present, and future benefits of living the, the Christian life. The past benefit is that we have peace with God. Right? We have been forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That has already happened for us. And then presently, he says that you are now standing, you're presently standing in God's grace. Which means at this moment, you're not falling in and out of God's grace as if you're serving some king that you, you have to hope that you do enough good to stay in his good graces. That's not what he says. He says you are currently standing in God's grace because his love for you through Jesus Christ. That is not going away. You're standing in his grace. And then in the end, he says in the, in the future, you have, a, you have a hope, a hope of glory. Something to rejoice in is that the future tense is that your, your future is secure because of what Christ has done for you. Now, as one commentator and theologian, John Stott, says, if you look at these first two verses, it sounds so perfect, so idyllic, right? 
you get peace, you get grace, you get hope. Except when you get to the fourth affirmation of this verse, which is found in the very next verse, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, <laughs> right? It doesn't quite hit the same. Uh, Paul's saying, no, no, another benefit is that we get to rejoice in our sufferings. In other words, we get to take joy in our sufferings. You see, the key to understanding joy in this life is found in this passage. Because he says here that when we rejoice in our sufferings, there's something that is produced. Endurance, and then endurance produces character, and character, hope. If you want to know one of the key indicators of the Christian life today, it is this, that as a Christian, we are giving a unique ability to understand joy in this life, even in the worst of circumstances. Even in our sufferings, Paul says. And today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at how, how can we know the truth that we've been justified, that we have peace with God, that we have grace from God, that we have this hope in God. How does our justification, because in Jesus Christ, how does that help us pursue joy in this life? even when that yellow caution tape cups up that would normally lead us to despair. So we're three questions from this text today. Uh, they're going to be up on the screen. It's going to help us uh, kind of tackle this topic of rejoicing our sufferings. Number one, we're going to look at why we need joy. So we're going to kind of pull back the curtain for a second and say, okay, this is a need of, the, of, of humanity. Why we need joy. How do we know joy? And then how do we live with joy? So we'll kind of get to the application at the end. So question number one, why we need joy. We, we pull back and start with this question because regardless today of your spiritual journey, regardless of what you think about Christianity, uh, when you read passages like this that says rejoice in your sufferings, having hope, grace, love, peace, these words that, that resonate with our human souls, it doesn't matter what you think about Christianity, we all want this in life, right? I mean, everybody wants to, the, the ability to have a deep flowing joy in their life and happiness that, that even when suffering and trials come, it, it's not affected, right? We all desire that in our hearts. No one would look at this passage and say, well, I don't want to rejoice in all of life. I don't, want to have, I don't want to be happy in all of life. I don't want to have that kind of abiding joy. That's why as children, we attach ourselves to fairy tales. We attach ourselves to the stories of the happily ever after because we want that. All of us deep inside, we want that kind of unending joy and happiness of the, the grander stories of life, the greater stories of life. But the problem is we grow up. And we grow up and we face the problems of this world. And we realize when we face the problems of this world that there's not that prince, right? He hasn't come along and kissed us and awakened us from the deep sleep. We realize there's not that beauty that has come within us to change the beast inside of us. We face a reality called disappointment in life. That the idealism of this world, that everything's going to end well and that we're just going to experience this eternal happiness, it, it's, it's hit right in the face with disappointment after disappointment after disappointment in life. I remember one of the, the, probably the first moments in my life when I grappled with this disappointment was uh, being a Georgia sports fan. Um, and now, recently, it's been, it's been pretty good. But uh, growing up in the 90s, you had the Braves. They were about the only saving grace of a Georgia sports fan. But I also was a huge Atlanta Falcons fan. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you know where I'm going already. So uh, in the winter of, of 1998 to 99, they, they play in their first uh, Super Bowl. And um, I was so, so in it, man. I was the dirty bird. I was doing it all. I was in awe of the team. I, I wanted to see the win. Uh, the problem was they were up against John Elway and the Denver Broncos, who ended up stomping them in the game. Um, and when you're a young, young man like that and you're, you're in your team, you're all in it, right? You're, you're living on every single moment, every touchdown, every pass, every down of the game. It's like dying a thousand deaths watching them play. It's an agony that, that should not be brought upon a little boy, but it happened, right? 
and my heart was literally broken. But then I gave him another chance. As an adult, in 2016, I'm thinking, they're not going to disappoint me this time, are they? They have, the, they have a large lead going into the fourth quarter, and they make Super Bowl history by blowing that lead to the Patriots, the largest fourth quarter loss in history of the Super Bowl. It was awful, man. You know what I said after that game? Never again. Never again will I give my heart to the Atlanta Falcons. Like, I'm done. I'm done, right? And, and there's something like that for all of us. Now, some of us in this room, we probably have the emotional bandwidth of a young boy, and we still, our hearts still break over sports teams, and that's okay every now and then. But, but for a lot of us, it's much deeper than that. It's a relationship gone bad. It's a career that didn't pan out. It's something much heavier, something that we put our full weight on and dependency upon for happiness, and then it disappoints us, and it leads us to despair. It, it, it breaks our hearts. It, our hopes get dashed. We put our happiness in something, and instead of that happily ever after feeling, what resonates with us is one of regret and disappointment. So what do we do? Well, we mask that childlike joy that we want, and we, we try to detach ourselves so we don't get hurt. Right. C.S. Lewis actually says this in one of his books. He says, love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, he says you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal, which some of us in D.C. need to hear that today. <laughs> Wrap it carefully, he says, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. In other words, he says, don't give your heart to anything. Don't give it to the Atlanta Falcons. Don't give it to anything. Don't give it to another man or woman or anything. Put it in a little casket so that it never breaks. Lock it up so that it can become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. And on one hand, we say, well, we'll see this. That's, that's wrong, right? Of course, we, we give our hearts to something, but if we give our hearts to something, we're going to have to face the disappointment when they let us down. But if we do the opposite effect and we say, well, no, 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 I'm going to attach myself from all of reality. I'm not going to give my heart to anything. I'm not going to seek happiness in anything. Then we actually dehumanize ourselves. We harden ourselves because deep down we know that we want the happily ever after. We want that joy in life. We need to be happy. It's a deep longing of our soul. So what do we do? We know it's a need. What do we do? Do we, do we kind of just live in that that pessimism of like, well, it's never really going to happen, or we, we open ourselves to the, the optimistic view of blindly saying, oh, well, I'll never get disappointed, and then we face that letdown. How do we find joy? Well, the good news is this is just part one of the sermon, okay? Number two, how do we get this joy? Or how do we know this joy? The essence of joy is found in the Christian faith. Because as this passage will teach us in just a moment as we read it, uh, it's one, not teaching us the bleak despair of hopelessness in this life, nor is it saying that joy is unattainable. In other words, the Bible doesn't uh, advocate for that kind of stoicism of life where we simply just relinquish hope, everything's going to disappoint us, we don't ever need to pursue it. Nor does this passage or anywhere in the Bible present that kind of overly optimistic, rose-colored glasses perspective of life that if you just believe in Jesus, everything's magically going to be okay. The Bible doesn't insult your intelligence that way at all. The Bible gives us a, a realistic view of how we can seek and pursue the type of joy that we long for. And there's two things that this passage teaches us that help us in our understanding of how we can actually know joy. Number one, our sufferings. So how we know joy, we look at our sufferings. Number two, we look at the sufferings of God. So number one, we, we know joy through our sufferings, right? Look what the text says in verse three. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, 
And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. And this is what makes Christians' understanding of joy so unique is it's not based on our circumstances at all, Paul says. It's actually not based on if things are going good in your life. Because he tells us that we can actually rejoice in our sufferings. What are sufferings? Well, sufferings are when favorable circumstances go away. When things don't quite turn out the way we want them to. When things turn bad in our lives. Paul says there's actually a way in which you can rejoice in your sufferings even when those circumstances go bad. Because they produce something, he says. It produces endurance. That then produces a character. That then leads to more hope. You see, what he's actually saying here is that when circumstances go bad, when, when circumstances are least favorable in your life, when you have suffering, it can actually give you more hope and therefore it can actually give you more joy. That a Christian's understanding of joy is actually that it can grow in our suffering. And oftentimes it does. Now this is, this is where we have to detach what I've been saying about happiness with joy. This is where the, the, the idea of worldly happiness and joy, they, they go at a crossroads here. Right, they're, they're, they go at a fork in the road. They, they, they take a, t- a turn from one another. They detach from one another. Why? Because the pursuit of worldly happiness is based on circumstance. It is based on good things happening in your life. And every single one of us in this room, we have a strategy in our hearts to accomplish that type of happiness. Every single one of us has, has developed a strategy to, to uh, attach ourselves to the goal of worldly happiness. We all have it. Right, we all do it. In, in D.C., it's pretty common. We say things like, well, my strategy is uh, if I get the right job, then I'll reach the goal of happiness. Or my strategy is if I just meet the right person, then I'll reach the goal of worldly happiness. Or if I have a certain amount of status, if I have a certain job title in my field, then finally I'll reach the goal of happiness. And it's a good goal. But the problem is the Bible says that our strategy is flawed to reach it. Because the strategy is ultimately to put our joy and our hope in something that is fleeting and that will ultimately disappoint. And what does that mean? Well, that actually means we suffer. When we do that, when our strategy is to put our hope and our joy in the things of this world that we think can bring us happiness, it ends up causing suffering. Suffering of regret, suffering of disappointment, the suffering of disillusionment, the suffering of dissatisfaction. These are good things, often, right, that we pursue for happiness. The Bible doesn't disregard that. It doesn't disregard that, that desiring happiness is also a good thing. But what it's saying in the text today is the reason why we rejoice in our sufferings and the reason why there's a difference between Christian joy and the pursuit of that in worldly happiness is that the pursuit of worldly happiness in the end, that happily ever after feeling we think we'll get from it will never come. Because our strategy to accomplish it is never going to fulfill the, the, the magnificent soul which God has created within us. It is too big for anything in this world to fill it. It is too big for anything in this world, a paycheck, status, or whatever it is that we try to attain happiness to fill it. Because in the end, those things are fleeting and they're unsatisfying. And that's really, what we go back to Romans 1, that's the, that's the point of what Paul's saying about the human heart in Romans chapter 1. Right, what does he say in Romans 1? He says the fundamental issue with our human heart is that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And when it relates to joy, the truth of God is that we will never find joy unless we are in his presence. 
The truth is we'll never find that type of joy that can rejoice in suffering unless we understand who God has made us to be and we conform our life to his life. But the problem is, our strategy is in Romans chapter 1 that we think we know better than God. The problem is we think his strategy is the one that's flawed, not ours. And that's why Paul says in verse 6 here that it's not just foolish to ignore God, it's rebellion. It's ungodliness. He says in verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for who? He died for the ungodly. Why does he use the word ungodly? Because the word ungodly literally means dismissive of God. It means an irreverence towards God. It's the type of person who says, who are you to tell me how to live my life? Now, I think we need to pause for a moment and just let this passage sit with us. Because if we're honest, we might say, well, I have a relationship with God, but I'm not feeling a lot of joy in life right now. And for some of us in the room, the reason why we don't feel like we're, we're having a lot of joy is because we are enduring some real hardships, some real sufferings, some, some really, really tough things in life right now, things that I don't even plan to begin to understand, some awful things in life. When we go through those moments, we have to remember when we're in those seasons of winter that God has not abandoned us. The Bible is clear about that. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is with us in the fire. He is walking with us through those storms. But for many of us, and dare I say most of us in the room, perhaps the reason why you come to church and you just find it not appealing to you right now, or perhaps the reason why you don't want to tell anyone that you're a believer right now, or perhaps the reason why you just feel like I have no joy in living the Christian life right now is because you bought into a strategy of the world for happiness. And there are things in my life and there are things in your life right now that are ungodly. Just like Romans 1, we've dismissed God's wisdom and we're holding on to something deep within our hearts for happiness that is not of him. I don't know what it is for you. It could be bitterness. It could be a broken relationship. It could be a hidden addiction. But the Bible says that whatever it is, it robs you of your joy. Because those things, sin, separates us from our God. It fractures our relationship with him. It pulls us away from him, and it separates us from the joy that he wants for us. Perhaps there's no better example of this than King David. In the Old Testament, King David teaches us all about joy. I mean, this dude is dancing, he's singing, he has a life filled with joy. And then he commits adultery. He commits adultery because in that moment he says, I know what will make me happy. Bathsheba will make me happy. And then he covers up with murder. And when he's finally confronted for his sin and brokenness, you know what he says in Psalm 51? He says this, Do not cast me from your presence, O Lord. Restore to me with the joy of your salvation. You see, what David was missing was not just God, he was missing joy. Because he thought he knew what would make him happiness, he was actually missing the happiness and the gladness and the contentment that came from his relationship with his God. Because in that moment, he believed that he knew, he believed a lie that he knew happiness was better than God. And oftentimes in our lives, we just like David, when suffering disappointment comes in our lives, what it reveals to us is a lack of real joy, but it also reveals that we're putting our hope into something else for that joy. It reveals that we've put our dreams into something other than God. So what is the solution when we come in those moments of suffering? Was well, to look to the suffering of God. 
is this passage reminds us that there is something deeper that can, that can be the foundation for our joy than just the temporary happiness of worldly pursuits. And it is what God has done for us. Look at the suffering of God, verse 6. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is the motivation here? His love for us. The motivation for, for the suffering of God through Jesus Christ was his love for us. And then Hebrews 12 actually expounds upon these motivations. It gives more insight to the motivations of his love for us on death on the cross. And it says this, It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Think about it. It was for joy that Jesus went to the cross. What was his joy? He was about to suffer. He was about to die. He was about to experience the worst possible thing imaginable. And he did it with joy. You know what his joy was? You. You are his joy when he looks at the cross. As Zephaniah 3.17 says it this way, that the Lord our God is with you. He is mighty to save, and he will take delight in you, and he will rejoice over you with singing. And when's the last time you went to work and your boss started singing because you were there? Right? Some of you would probably leave if that happened. <laughs> Just be weird. When's the last time you went anywhere and you walked into a room and because of your presence, people were so excited to see you that they just burst out in song? Do you realize today that when we come into the presence of God, we're not the only ones singing? That God is singing because you're here. Because you are his joy. He takes such delight in you that he would send his only son to die for you. He is mighty to save, the text says. And this is Paul's point. That the love of God in Jesus' death is the source of our joy. That despite our weakness, that despite our rebellion, he still sent his son to die so that we could have peace, so that we could have grace, so that we could have hope. It's all because of the death of Jesus Christ. Paul says if we allow this to, to work itself into our lives, then it will flood our lives with joy. It will remind us that he is singing over us, that when he went to the cross, Jesus didn't go to the cross grumpy. He didn't go to the cross naive. He went to the cross with a deep abiding joy because not only did he trust and obey his father, but because he knew that going to the cross would mean that you could be a part of his family. And that brought joy to him. This is why the Christian can say that our joy can grow even when our circumstances are not great. Because when suffering comes, it leads us into something deeper. It leads us into God. When things are bad in our lives, it is like the appetizers that we think we're nibbling on for happiness. When they go away, it actually puts us in a right mindset to pursue the feast our souls were made for, to dive into God to see what he has done for us, to see that his sufferings are for you today. We can develop a strong poise in those moments when we turn to the one that our souls were made for. And Paul says that develops character. And that character leads us to hope. A strong hope that never goes away even when circumstances turn bad. Why? Because the source of our joy is not in the circumstance. The source in our joy is on God's unending, never giving up, never ceasing love for us. 
displayed through his sufferings on the cross. And in that moment, in those moments, because of God's suffering, we can realize that Jesus was the prince who has come alongside and he has awakened us from the dark sleep. In those moments, we can see that there is a happily ever after for us because Jesus is the one, the beauty that has come into our lives and he has changed the beast within us and presented a beauty that is beyond our ability. He is the one who has swooped in, the hero who has laid down his life to rescue us this morning. The point is, it's all about what he has done. Jesus gave up his life so that we could have joy. Which leads us to our third question here as we come to our time of conclusion here. How do we live with joy? See, it's one thing to know it. It's one thing to understand that we need it, but how do we live with it? It's one thing to experience it appropriately in the midst of our worship, but how do we take it out of here? It's like going to a good restaurant, you sit down, you eat the good meal, and you say, well, that's great, but how do we take it to go? How do, how do we go through our, our, our week and, and continue to live with this joy today? Well, there's three things that I want us to walk away with. Number one, we need to know the logic of the gospel. Number two, we need to experience the beauty of the gospel. And number three, we need to celebrate the hope of the gospel. We need to know the logic of the gospel, experience the beauty of the gospel, and celebrate the hope of the gospel. Know the logic of the gospel. Look at verse 9 and 10 and 11. Notice at the end of this passage how logical Paul is. He, he's developing an argument here for us. He's going from a, a lesser and greater argument. He used this term much more, multiple times. And what he's teaching us here is if something has happened, then he's basing that because this has happened, how much more will something else happen for us? Okay? He says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? And then he builds on this. For, while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you see the logic building here? He says, if, if, if God sent his son to die for us while we were still his enemies, and that brought us reconciliation and forgiveness, wouldn't it make sense that, that, that no matter what we experience in life, he's still going to be there for us? And, and more than that, how much more through his life, meaning through his resurrection, will he prove that his power is greater than our circumstances? That's what Paul's arguing here. He's saying if the logic here is if, if Jesus has died for us when we were his enemies and he has reconciled us, then we can take comfort in knowing that the resurrection, his life, is evidence that God is more powerful than our circumstances. And that can bring to us a hope and a joy in our life. We need to think and argue the logic of the gospel in our lives because guess what? When you fall into despair, when you fall into temptation, when you're disappointed, when you're in those moments of suffering, logically, you know what happens in our minds? We begin to question who God is. We need to argue in our minds to know that the only hope we have is in a God who is both good and powerful. He is both, that, is, that is how we can rejoice because this text says that he is both good and powerful. If he's just one or the other, then we don't have reason to rejoice in God today. If God is just powerful, then he's a tyrant. Why, why, would, why, why, would, we, why would we give our hearts to him? Why would we open our lives to him? And if he's just good, then, then God sent Jesus just to be another well-intended martyr. But he has no power to defeat or overcome our struggles, our joylessness, our sufferings. But what we see here and what Paul's arguing here is that he is both good and he is powerful. He is so good that he is willing to die for us and to reconcile us to himself. It doesn't get any more good than that. That God himself is dying on our behalf while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were his enemies. That is God's goodness to us. 
but he also displays his power in the resurrection through his life. That through the resurrection, he defeats the seemingly impossible enemy of death so that death and resurrection can come together, the goodness and the power of God. We need to argue that into our lives. We need to know that, the logic that Jesus is both good and he is powerful in the midst of our suffering. But it's not enough just to keep it up here. We also need to experience the beauty of the gospel and allow it to have an effect on our hearts. We need it to be poured out into our hearts. Verse 5, he says this, that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. You see, the love of God is not merely something just intellectually that we understand. It's something personal and intimate that we experience in our hearts. That through the Holy Spirit, we can have a direct encounter with the profound and unconditional love of God. And here's what I mean by that. We all go through difficult circumstances. I remember one in particular that I went through, a, a difficult circumstance, a time of suffering, a time of despair in my life. It, it revolved around a, a choice of a college that I thought I was a shoe-in to get into, and I got in, and I thought I was going. It, it was, had everything. I, li- I even had my ID card. That's how invested I was, and then something happened in a situation in our life that, that I, c- I couldn't go anymore. A, s- a suffering, a circumstance came, and it, it just it wrecked me. And you may think that's silly, right? And we don't want to belittle anyone suffering here today. We all have moments like that, but it really wrecked me. And I remember sitting in my room that night, and my dad came, and he had the hard conversation. And with tears in his eyes, he's like, hey, son, you can't, you, you're not going to be able to go to this college. And, and I remember in that moment just feeling so despair, so lost. And I looked at my dad, and I saw his tears, and I thought, you know what? My earthly dad right now, if he could take the pain away from me, he would. I just, I just knew it, right? And what that, what that did for me was, I, look, I knew the logic of the gospel. I knew who Jesus was. I knew who God was. But in that moment, I looked at my dad and said, if my earthly dad will do that, how much more is my heavenly father doing that for me right now? See, what happened was in that moment of despair, the theology that was in my head, the logic of the gospel that was in my head became real to my heart. And I knew in that moment, it didn't take all the pain away, but I knew in that moment I wasn't walking in this alone. I, I knew in that moment in my heart I wasn't forsaken I knew in that moment that this didn't wreck my happily ever after story through Jesus Christ. He was still there for me. I was still his son. In those moments of despair, we have to understand that the, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. It's not just enough to know it here, but to experience it and allow it to affect us, the beauty of it, to be real to our hearts. And lastly, we need to let that lead us to celebrate, to celebrate the hope of the gospel. You know, um, Maybe the best illustration I'll close with this is as a sports fan, sometimes major sporting events um, conflict uh, with other things in life, right? So especially if you're married. Um, and so there's this wonderful thing that you can actually record sporting events now. Um, and so sometimes, every now and then, maybe there's a wedding or a church service, or something that, that precludes uh, the ability to watch a big game that you love, okay? So what do you do? Well, you, you DVR it and you say, all right, look, friends, don't tell me anything. Don't tweet at me. Don't call me. Don't text me. I don't want to know the results of this game. I want to watch it for myself and enjoy it. But what inevitably happens, someone leaks it to you, right? <laughs> and it frustrates you. You find out that your team won in the last three seconds on this Hail Mary, and it was amazing, and it was improbable. And so you go that afternoon, and you watch the game. And you watch it with your friends, and as you're watching the game, you notice that, man, it seems impossible. The team's not playing well. There's no way they're going to win this. So you start kicking things and throwing things, start yelling at the TV, and your friend's like, bro, you already know who won. Like, chill out, right? That, that's essentially what Paul's doing here in this passage for us. When suffering's happening, Paul is actually using the past tense here to remind us, hey, like, celebrate. You've already been justified. You are already reconciled. Christ has already died for you. And he has already been raised for you. It has already happened. So therefore, like, let's, let's celebrate. 
Right? Let's come together as a community and let's worship and let's, let's keep the hope of the gospel in front of us because we already know who won. That's what Paul's saying here. We have a hope in God and we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because we already know who won. We know that he has already done this for us. That death has already been defeated. We know the outcome already. The final score has come in. And so each week when we come together as a Christian community, guess what we get to do? We get to celebrate and rehearse the hope of the gospel in front of our hearts so that no matter what circumstances we are currently facing, we can have joy because it's already been accomplished for us, because of what Jesus has already done for us, because of what he has already given up for us. So as we come to our time of the Lord's Supper, let's allow the Holy Spirit to give us that sense of God's love in our hearts this morning. That is a power that can handle any circumstance we go through with joy and that can keep us coming in this room and to worship and to celebrate and to sing about our forever happy ending, the foretaste of our enjoyment of God forever. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.